Amen. Thanks, Ben. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 22. It's hard copy, or you might have it on a device of some sort. We're going to look at the first six verses of that chapter. We finished a couple weeks ago with chapter 21. We'll start in on chapter 22 this week. And as you get yourself opened up to there, it is a shorter passage. We're going to read it. Um, verses one through six. And since it is a little bit shorter, if you're able to, would you stand up as we read from God's word? This is the word of the Lord from the gospel of Luke chapter 22, starting in verse one. It says this, the festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him, that's Jesus, to death because they were afraid of the people. When Satan entered, or then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for, an opportun- or for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for this morning. God, thank you for your son and for brothers and sisters in Christ who we can gather alongside in worship. God, I pray that you would use your word this morning, that by the power of your spirit, you would open our hearts and minds that we might see what it is that you have to say, that we might receive it with glad hearts, that we would rejoice in the truth of the gospel, and by the power of your spirit, be conformed to the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Can be seated. Now, there's a four-word phrase at the start of verse three here that sort of like grabs our attention, then Satan entered Judas. Uh, we'll get there. But I want us to do more than just talk about what that means. I want us to, to do even more than just examine this human plot or conspiracy that sends Jesus to his death. We'll certainly... Look at that human agreement. We'll certainly talk about the work of Satan in the midst of that. But my hope is that we can also step backward and see the plan of God. The good, sovereign plan of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that sent the Son to the cross in place of sinful humanity. That's my hope this morning. The landing point is this. The betrayal of Jesus at the hands of Judas is a grievous act of sin a great mystery of God's providence and a glorious reminder of the gospel. Now it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the gospel of Luke and so some reminder of the context of what's happening here is helpful and verse one in chapter 22 actually gives that to us. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. Jesus is in the final week of his life. He's entered into the city of Jerusalem and every day we're told he's been going to the temple in order to teach. And as he goes to teach, crowds flock to him in order to hear. Now the city would have been packed full of Jewish men and women during this time who had made the trip to Jerusalem in order to worship at the temple and celebrate the feast of unleavened bread and the Passover. Those are actually two separate 
holy times. They're two separate events on the Jewish calendar whereby the Israelite people would stop and remember something that the Lord did among them. But they're actually kind of smooshed together all into one experience because the Feast of Unleavened Bread culminates in the Passover. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day festival that the Israelites were supposed to observe where they didn't eat any bread made with yeast. That was to commemorate back in Egypt, right before the Exodus, God told them, prepare bread, don't use any yeast so that you can take that and leave at a moment's notice when it's time for us to flee from Egypt. And then that culminates in the Passover, the night where the Lord's angel goes through Egypt and he passes over the homes of the Israelite families who have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. So those two festivals, those separate events, read about in Exodus 13, are smashed together and Israelites would have come to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. That's sort of the setting. And in the middle of that, in the middle of this religious festival, we're told this, verse two, the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. With the city full and people flocking to the temple to hear Jesus teach, the religious leaders of the day want Jesus dead but they know that they can't do that to him publicly. Now, all of that is wrapped up in the chief priests and the religious leaders' desire to maintain the status quo. Their position in Israel is one of great power and influence. It's one of uh, high status and high position. And so Jesus and his preaching there in the temple undermines their power. He's a threat to that. This gospel message that Jesus is teaching threatens to upend the religious system there in Israel. So the chief priests, the religious leaders of the day, they want to neutralize that threat. We're told they want to put him to death. But what they can't know for sure is how the crowd might react to something happening to Jesus. Philip Ryken, who's a commentator, he says about this verse in Luke 22, the following. He says, their malice against Jesus is only constrained by their cowardice in the fear of public opinion. Now there's a whole sermon right there about how our fears about how people might view and think about us influence the things that we do. But that's a sermon for a different time. What's worth noting is that in their longing to maintain their position and status and in the blindness of their flesh and in their sin, these chief priests and religious leaders have convinced themselves somehow that murder would be an acceptable course of action. And the only thing that gives them pause is what the crowds of Jewish people might do in response. They, they do not slow down on this plot because they're scholars in the Old Testament law and God's law says not to murder. That does not give them pause. Their conscience and their obedience to God is not what slows them down. What slows them down is these people might riot. That's unthinkable. And yet at the same time, it's not something that we're completely immune from. We actually do this in all of our sin. Most of the time in our sin, the thing that slows us down is not, what does God's word say about this? The thing that slows us down is, what might the consequences of this be? 
what might people around me think if I do this thing? What about my wife? Or what about my place of employment? Or my boss? Or my kids? Or what about the people on the block? It's not usually, well, God's word says this, therefore I shouldn't. The thing that most commonly or sometimes first gets us to pump the brakes in our own sin is what someone else might think of us because of it. So we're not all that different than these religious leaders, these chief priests. Keep reading with me, verse three. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. Hold off for a moment on the first four words of verse three. We'll come back to those. There's a lot that happens in order to lead up to this conspiracy between Judas and the chief priests and religious leaders. The full picture of that actually requires that we step back and take all four gospel accounts and put them together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just from the gospel of Luke, we're told that Judas goes to the chief priests and that they then make an agreement. Now that word agree is actually something more akin to settling a negotiation. They agree on terms. Here's what you will do and here's what we will give you. Luke doesn't spell out what the terms of that are. All we are told is that the religious leaders, verse five, are happy to pay him to betray Jesus. Judas goes to the religious leaders. They come to some sort of mutually agreeable uh, terms and for some amount of money that Judas might hand Jesus over to them. And we get more from the other gospel accounts though that give us a fuller picture of how this plays out. Mark 14 verse one tells us about the religious leader side that they have a conversation among themselves, not during the religious festival, they say, so that there won't be a riot. Mark 14.10 gives us Judas's side of it. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus. So it's not that the chief priests go to the disciples and try to figure out who could they siphon off and get to do their dirty work. It's that Judas, all on his own, goes to them and says, hey, actually, Matthew 26, verse 15, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? End of Matthew 26, verse 15. They weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. John gives us some more of the backstory on Judas as a person. In John 12, when Jesus is anointed at Bethany, Judas is angry about Mary's waste of perfume to anoint Jesus. We're told that Judas says this, John 12, verses five and six. Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Which sounds like a very noble thing and in line with Jesus's ministry, but John gives us a little commentary. He says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. So there's the whole picture of the conspiracy. Religious leaders so concerned about the maintenance of their power and influence that they're plotting to kill Jesus in the middle of a religious festival. Judas looking to capitalize on a chance to earn himself some extra coin. And an apparent happy agreement between the two parties whereby the chief priests quietly arrest and put an end to Jesus without inciting a riot and Judas gets 30 pieces of silver for his efforts. 
two brief pastoral observations and warnings here. The first one is this. Positions of religious leadership are no guarantee of righteous living. These are faithful Israelite men. Faithful Israelite men who know the Old Testament scriptures in and out. In fact, they are as well-versed in the Old Testament law as anyone in all of history. And yet here they were, convinced that murder is an acceptable act, and we're told, verse 5, happy to pay someone to help them do it. They're willing and even eager to engage in grievous sin. Not just any grievous sin, but grievous sin against the very Son of God. Here's observation and warning number two. Proximity to Jesus's activity is no guarantee of saving relationship. My aim here is not to speculate about Judas's salvation. Is he or is he not saved? What we can say for certain is that Judas is as close to the ministry and the work of Jesus as anyone would have been. He had seen each and every step of Jesus's ministry heard each and every one of Jesus' sermons, taken part in Jesus' ministry activity. He was even sent out to do work and ministry on behalf of the kingdom. And yet, nonetheless, here's Judas, willing to engage in grievous sin. Not just any grievous sin, but grievous sin against the very Son of God. Now, it's also worth saying, you could take the last two words of both of those phrases and flip them into the other one. Positions of religious leadership are no guarantee of saving relationship. Proximity to Jesus' activity is no guarantee of righteous living. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Luke says this, at best we have a faint conception of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Oftentimes the kind of speculating we want to do about the chief priests, the religious leaders, the scribes, the temple police, and about Judas involves why. Why would they do that? How could they do that to Jesus? And so we come up with different sorts of reasons. Well, here's why the chief priests would do that, and here's why Judas would do that. And the reason that we want to ask those questions is so that we can drill down the answer and then say, I would never. Oh, here's why they did that. I would never do that. Here's why Judas did that. I would never do that. At best, we have a faint conception of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. We've mentioned this at various times throughout this series as Jesus has interacted with the religious elite of his day. But in our day, you do not have to look very far to find Christian leaders, to find Christian ministries that are partaking in grievous sin. Whole denominations, individual churches, leaders of individual Christian parachurch ministries, you don't have to look very far in any one of those directions to find religious leaders, and those close to the proximity of Jesus' ministry engaging in grievous sin. Just two weeks ago, there was a report that came out about the cover-up of sexual um, assault within the Southern Baptist Convention. You can read that report or the summaries of that report, and you read it and you say to yourself, well, how could they? Why would they? And we ask those questions so that we can drill down to the bottom, hold out the answer and say, I would never. And this is not to say that we shouldn't 
publicly speak out against, name, and condemn sin of these types within any kind of Christian ministry or organization. But what we need to be careful of is getting to the root of what the sin is and then trying to say or portray ourselves as, I would never do that same thing. And the reason why is because if you sat down with one of these chief priests or religious leaders or scribes or temple police, or you sat down with Judas and you said, hey, I would never have done that. Why did you do that? They would say, well, hold on, let me explain. What do you do in your sin when someone calls out your sin and says, how could you? Why did you? You say, pause, let me explain. As if whatever explanation you're about to offer or I'm about to offer somehow makes that sin not sin anymore. That's what all of us do. We stand far back from someone else's sin and we say, I would never do that. And then when someone says, why did you do that? We say, well, pause, let me explain. It makes more sense if you let me talk it out. It's still sin. And just because someone's in a position of religious leadership does not make them immune from that. And just because someone is very involved in ministry that looks very much like Jesus does not mean that they might not live in an unrighteous way like that. One of the great warnings we take away from this passage is that we have a faint conception of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. The betrayal of Jesus at the hands of Judas is a grievous act of sin. It's a great mystery of God's providence and a glorious reminder of the gospel. Now let's work with the first four words of chapter, of verse three. Then Satan entered Judas. There are some obvious questions that sort of scream into our hearts and minds when we read that. Like what in the world is going on here? What happened exactly? What were the mechanics of it? Maybe most importantly, we ask ourselves, what does that mean for a follower of Jesus or for a person today? And so before we start to answer those questions, I want to step back and be clear on some very basic truths about who Satan is. His very name, Satan, means adversary. That name makes sense because scripture tells us that Satan is the fallen angel Lucifer who rose up in prideful rebellion and opposition to God. He was the adversary to God's rule and reign. He has been given the earth to roam around within. In Ephesians, he's called the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit at work within the disobedient. Again, that title makes sense. God, triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is king. All those disobedient to him are adversaries and Satan is chief among those. Literally, he is the ruler of those who are disobedient to or in opposition to to God. Some other quick basics. He is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. All of those omnis that God is, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, Satan is none of those. He's limited. He's a created being. Most notably and unequivocally, he is limited by God in all aspects of his power, influence, control, and even existence. So what does it mean that Satan entered Judas? There's two parts to that question. There's a linguistic part, like what is Luke actually trying to say happened? And then there's the physical part. How did that actually play out? Unfortunately, neither of those things is entirely clear. And it's important for us to not try to say more than we can say from confident, solid biblical footing. I've worked through this in the order that I have because I want to be clear about the fact that Judas is acting of his own will and his own volition. 
There are times in the gospel accounts where a person is demonized, seemingly controlled by a demon. Think of the man chained up, the demoniac chained up in the cemetery, or the child who's thrown down oftentimes into a fire by a demon. The first thing I would want to say here is that this with Judas does not appear to resemble those things with the demoniac or the child. Judas is in his right mind. Taking what John's gospel says, it appears that he's acting according to his character. He's making his own choices. In fact, it's the very nature of those choices that lead Judas into this moment and ultimately into and under the sway of Satan. Colin Smith, a pastor in Chicago, says this. Judas had been stealing from the collective money bag. And when he kept this sin secret, Satan entered into him. He made a deal with the chief priests and then sat down at our Lord's table with known sins he would not confess. And Satan entered even further into his life. Unconfessed sin always opens the door to Satan's power. Satan doesn't gain a foothold in the lives of people who are walking in the light with Jesus. He only gains access when we open the door. It is the peculiar majesty of Jesus that he can conquer man without man's first approaching him. But Satan's frailty is proved by this, that he cannot approach a soul unless that soul has first turned to him. So Satan enters Judas. Is that a physical thing? I don't know. And I'm not entirely sure whether it's ultimately benefit for us to speculate one way or the other. But here's what we can know. Satan made use of Judas. Judas's flesh, Judas's sin, Judas's lust for money. And he used those things to further his own plans and his own desires for the death of Jesus. Which leads us to the next question. Can this happen to a believer? Can Satan enter into a believer? Again, I don't want to speculate whether or not Judas is saved. That's a conversation we could have at a different time in a different place. But what we can say definitively about the power of Satan over the lives of believers is this. James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist Satan and he will flee from you. The key is at the front of that verse. There's comfort in the knowledge that as we resist Satan by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will flee from us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, rest in that truth. You need not fear that Satan will enter into you like he did to Judas so long as you resist him. That is good news. But the first part of the verse is key. We resist Satan by submitting to God. The only way to talk even briefly about this topic is to be sure we're clear on the true nature and gravity of sin. To sin is to act in opposition to God, in opposition to his character, in opposition to his commands, in opposition to his will, in opposition to his very being. Sin is not a little mess up. Sin is not a small mistake or a casual thing whereby we just sort of did a little bit of wrong and it's no big deal. Those are often the ways we position sin. But we position sin in those ways primarily in order to downplay sin so that we might think more highly of ourselves. Oh, I just make small mistakes. The good news of the gospel is that we don't need to think more highly of ourselves though. God thinks highly of Jesus and that is what matters for those who are saved by his grace. We often like to think about sin as though we're a child in the living room playing catch with our sibling. 
In the middle of the game of catch, we knock the lamp off the end table and it shatters on the ground. Mom and dad come in. We say, I'm sorry, mom, I didn't mean to. The lamp broke as if that is our sin. In reality, what sin is, is mom or dad walks into the room, you grab the lamp, look over at mom and dad, wink, and shatter that thing on the ground. That is sin. We want to think of ourselves as making a little mistake and knocking the lamp off, when in reality, we've grabbed the lamp, smiled, chuckled, and thrown it on the ground. We might as well be honest about sin. To sin in a moment is to set ourselves in opposition to God. To be born in sin and to have a sin nature means that humanity, without the renewing, regenerating, restoring work of God's grace, is bent toward opposition to God. That is the very nature of humanity, bent toward opposing God. Now think back to the very nature of who Satan is. He is the adversary, the chief opponent in opposition to God, the ruler of those who are disobedient and opposed to God. And so I say this both carefully, but also intentionally. When we sin, we are choosing to align ourselves not with the goodness of who God is, but with the opposition to who God is. When we sin we willingly align ourselves with Satan. Now that offends our sensibilities. But we do ourselves no spiritual favors by talking less of sin in order to think more of ourselves. John Piper says it this way, Satan does not take innocent people captive. Satan has power where sinful passions hold sway. How then Would you resist Satan so that he would flee from you? You would do so by submitting yourself to God, to his rule and his reign, to his goodness, to his will, to his commands, to his character, to his purposes. And so to go back to our question, can Satan enter into a believer? My answer would be the following. Resist Satan by submitting to God and you have nothing to fear. The betrayal of Jesus at the hands of Judas is a grievous act of sin. It is a grievous act of opposition to God. It's also a great mystery of God's providence and a glorious reminder of the gospel. So I want to move to the second two parts of that phrase. There is more at play than just a human plot, pact, and conspiracy here. The embodiment of evil himself, Satan, was in on the whole thing. And this is where the great mystery of God's sovereign providence comes in. A grievous act of sin is not only what sends Jesus to his arrest and to the cross, but it was also the predetermined plan of God to have it be so. One could argue that Judas, the religious leaders, and Satan are not even the primary players in this passage The father and the son are not just aware, but they are actually in control of what is happening in this moment, and they had been control in all moments leading up to this one. I'm just going to read you rapid fire Jesus' own words in the Gospels, quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus in Matthew 21, verse 42, quoting from Psalm 118. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Jesus in John 
15, verse 25, quoting from Psalm 35. The word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 31, quoting Zechariah 13. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus in John 13, verse 18, quoting from Psalm 41. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus says in Matthew 26, the son of man goes as it is written of him. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gave the third of his predictions about his death. Verses 31 to 33, it says, then he took the 12 aside and told them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him and he will rise on the third day. The gospels make it clear that Jesus is well aware of what is both written about him in the Old Testament and what is going to happen to him at the end of his life. But it isn't just that Jesus knows. It isn't just that God knows. Yes, God knows. Yes, Jesus knows. But the biblical picture is actually that God is in control of what is happening. Hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, in, in Isaiah verse 53, we're told, he himself, or chapter 53, he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After Jesus' death, in Acts chapter four, in a prayer, the apostles say this, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Both the prophets ahead of Jesus' birth, Jesus himself, and the apostles after his death, resurrection, and ascension understand that the death of the Son was the will and the work of God. And so how do the sinful acts of humanity and the holy sinless will and work of God come together to send Jesus to the cross in a way that leaves the humans responsible and God holy and blameless? That is a great mystery. A great mystery that is higher than our ways, but is the unequivocal testimony of scripture from beginning to end. That is the mystery of God's providence and sovereignty. The betrayal of Jesus at the hands of Judas is a grievous act of sin. It's a great mystery of God's sovereign providence and it is a glorious reminder of the gospel. Luke's gospel mentions Satan a few times. 
but only twice does it do so in the context of what Satan is doing, Satan's work. In Luke 4, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And then we don't hear anything more about Satan's work until Luke 22, when Satan enters into Judas and initiates the events that will lead Jesus to the cross. And there is a crucial phrase at the end of this passage that links us back to Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4.13, we're told that Satan leaves Jesus until another time, an opportune time. Throughout the gospel of Luke, Luke 6, Luke 19, Luke 20, we're told that the religious leaders are looking for an opportunity to apprehend Jesus. Looking for an opportunity. Luke 22, verse 6. So Judas accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Judas is looking for an opportunity. Satan himself, the religious leaders, Judas, all looking for the right moment to betray Jesus and send him to the cross. And it's in that where we get this beautiful reminder of the depth, wonder, and majesty of the gospel. How? Well, because Jesus is not lurking around in the shadows trying to avoid this whole deal. Remember what he did in Nazareth after his first sermon when the people wanted to throw him off the cliff? He turned around, he walked right back through the crowd very calmly. Why? Because it wasn't time yet. Now he's ventured calmly into Jerusalem He's been teaching in the temple daily during the festival of unleavened bread. He's going to willingly go to the Mount of Olives and when they arrive there to arrest him, he's going to look at them and say, you could have taken me any day in the temple. Do you have to come out here with clubs and swords? Does this strike you as a man who's fearful that everyone is hunting him? Who's trying to avoid capture? Who's worried that people are looking for him? Not at all. In fact, he seems the exact opposite. It seems like he is moving toward this reality willingly rather than running away from it. And so consider the following with me for a moment as we close. Jesus chose in eternity past to come to earth. Jesus chose to come at this time and in this place. Jesus chose Judas as one of the 12. Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem. Jesus chose to go to the garden on the night he was arrested. Jesus chose not to fight when he was apprehended. He chose not to defend himself when on trial. He chose not to summon angels to rescue him from the cross. He chose to die and be placed in a tomb. He chose to resurrect triumphantly from the dead. He chose to appear numerous times to hundreds of people before ascending. He chose to draw you into relationship with him. The great wonder of this passage is not, how exactly did Satan enter into Judas? The great wonder of this passage is, why would Jesus choose all of that if we're no better than the chief priests? and Judas himself. That is the great wonder of this passage. The great question of this passage is why, if I am just as prone to sin as the chief leaders and religious uh, priests and scribes are, if I'm just as prone to sin as Judas is, why would Jesus choose to go to the cross on my behalf to save a wretch like me? And the answer is because of his infinite love for his people. And so what does Jesus do to stop this from happening? Nothing. 
In fact, he's going to sit down at dinner later that same night, look around the table and say, one of you is going to betray me. And when they say, who? He's not even gonna out the person. And then when Judas brings the mob to him there on the Mount of Olives while he's praying and kisses him on the cheek, he's going to say, Judas, with a kiss, that's how you betray me. He's going to tell his followers to put their swords down. He's going to turn himself in. He's going to let himself be put on trial, carry his own cross up the hill, let them nail him to it, not summon the angels to get him down, breathe his last. And when he does, he's going to cry out, it is finished. The good news of the gospel is that though you are just as vile as the sinners in this passage, it was the delight of Jesus to die in your place for the glory of God and for the collection of his people. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.